Welcome to the Positive Populist podcast. Very difficult to say. Yes. But here we are. Very excitingly, Kennedy is here. Woo! And so my first question is always, are you, Kennedy, a positive populist? No, I, I'm not as big of a fan of populism as you <laughs> no, are. No, I thought you might but say But I that. love positivity. There you are. So you're yeah, half I, of it. I'm, in, I'm a positive individualist. Okay, so I think of you politically. I, I was, you know, very pleased you answered that question, honestly. Yes. Because, you know, some people come on here and they say, yeah, of course, yeah, I agree sure. with you, Steve. You know, I'll it's your you thing. I, I'll go with your thing. But you're, uh, I always thought of you actually as a libertarian. Is that an inaccurate term? No, that's a very accurate term. But you said individualist, which is in many ways much nicer. Sure. There's something about libertarian I'm that can small... be off-putting to people. Sure, it, it can. And it can mean a number of different things. But it really is about the power of the individual. Right. And so... An individual liberty. And so tell me how you got to that point. It's interesting because I was very political in high school. I mm -hmm. loved politics and music. Mm -hmm. And I did whatever I could to get as close to both of those worlds as possible. And uh, some of the music I listened to was political and, you know, other songs and bands, not necessarily. Where are, let's just get a bit. Where are we? Because you grew up in around, Oregon. Yeah. Oregon. Yeah. That's interesting because I always thought of you as being California-based because when you come and do the show, you've got roots here in L.A., sure. but you're saying Oregon. Yes, I, I was born in Indiana and raised in Oregon. Okay. And then moved to California three months after graduation. Okay. So I um, I was working on three different campaigns. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Political campaigns? Yes. Political okay, campaigns. So let, I, okay, before we get to that, I want to go back to the music. Yes. Very interested in that. So what kind of music? Um, I, I liked uh, I liked alternative and punk rock uh -huh. and some classic rock. And the so punk, what I mean, would you go and go to gigs and throw yourself around and yeah, go nuts? Absolutely. I have done a bit of that in my time. Yeah, a little bit of bruising, and you know what a great time in London. I'm assuming you were raised in London, right? Well, I grew up in a town called Brighton on the south okay. coast. It was really good for music. Great, like really great clubs. Except that for me, when I really got into music, it was more. Um, it was ju we we're just really getting into, into the early days of like acid. It was actually acid house was the yes. big thing that I was into, and the early days of house becoming before it went really mainstream. Yes, I, that I, was more my thing when I was I, just I going out to clubs and I got into that. Stuff. I got into the Manchester. Oh sound yeah, of course. Quite a bit uh, when I got to Los Angeles in 1990 and uh -huh. started working in an alternative radio station, and this was you know just like a year and a half pre grunge. Yeah. And it was um, Charlatans UK. Uh, Charlatans are amazing. Yeah. They're like uh, properly amazing. Yeah. I, I loved Charlatans. And uh, there's a, there's an amazing, so there's a track called Sprost and Green. I don't mm -hmm. know if yes. it's like, it's so good. Great song. And they, um, I'm going to send you the link. Somehow with this, I don't know how people will see this podcast. I'll put the link up somewhere. There's a gig they do, which I went to wow. in the Astoria in London, which is now no longer exists. It's been pulled down and, it was just one of the best, that, their performance of that song, just one of the best things ever. Fantastic. Yeah, really amazing. Charlatans, how amazing. You love Yeah, so I, I liked uh, Charlatans and um, Happy Monday. Yeah. And of course, Susie. And, of course, Susie you know, and the Banshees. Yeah. Like one of the first gigs I ever went to was Susie and the Banshees. And and the number of bands that came out of Manchester, it's it's really, it's How amazing. Yes. Okay, so this is all, like, we could do half an hour just on that. Yeah. Um, But I also was really intrigued when you said, when you talked about the sort of political music, mm -hmm. what kind of things are you thinking about there? Well, you know, a, a lot of punk rock is, uh, it's very anti-establishment. Right. And I always enjoyed that. And, and there were, you know, there was, there was a side that I loved because 
it was, you know, the clash and, and you know, various yeah. events. So it's all about, you know, working hard and kind of sticking it to the man. And and that is more, you know, positive. Populous, yes. Yeah, that there's way more populism in that kind of music. Uh, but at the same time, I was a conservative Republican. So there was a natural tension between the music I loved and the bands I looked up to because they probably hated the political figures that yes. I admired. That's so interesting. Conser- but when did you think of yourself as a conservative Republican? In high school. So I started doing youth legislature and I did Girl State and Girls Nation and yeah. you know all of these various political programs. And then I started interning for my state representative, my senior year in high school. And yeah. I did student government, but it's funny because the movie Rushmore resonated with me because I had right. really bad grades. Right. Because I was so busy doing all the extracurricular stuff. And that that was the stuff that I was most passionate about. Uh-huh. And I loved arguing about politics and writing bills for youth legislature and really getting into the issues and debates and sitting in school and taking notes and taking tests. But I think really so brilliantly. It really connects with you because you've got that comp. Because I had a similar thing where politically I felt like I was definitely on the side of the right, you know, the conservatives, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Mm-hmm. I kind of identified with her. My family were immigrants from Hungary, kind of working people. My stepfather was a construction guy, you know, and, and there's this kind of sense of Thatcher being for the workers, actually. Yes. It wasn't the snooty kind of Republican image in, in the UK back then. Mrs. Thatcher was for the workers and the Labour Party actually were for layabouts and people on welfare. That was mm-hmm. the, what I grew up with. And so I had that conservatism but also this anti-establishment thing. I remember getting in trouble the whole time, you know, kind of arguing with the teachers and leading kind well, of... War- uh, and it, so that you sounds like you had that same thing going on. And that's one of the reasons why I consider myself to be a Republican, because it made most of the teachers that I despised so mad. <laughs> and it was the easiest way to get under their skin was to declare my love for Ronald Reagan. And, you know, I, and I had one teacher in particular that couldn't wait to give me an F. And it wasn't because... You know, I, I didn't do homework and, and, you know, I did really well on tests, but turned in no homework. Right. So best case scenario, I would get C's, but he, he found a way to fail me and he was so delighted about that. Did you have anyone else who had that combination of what, you know, simplistically you could call right wing politics, but uh, left wing musical taste in the sense that those bands and, and music generally is seen as being on the left? Yes, and they weren't. I didn't realize that they were libertarians until later on, uh-huh. because they tend to be a little bit more heady and less emotional, right. and you know more logic based. And so they they listen to music that you know now could be described as mathy. Right. And uh, and so I was always drawn to people like that. I was always drawn to people who had like. Um, an argument for why they loved the songs they did. And I, I loved Henry Rollins and Black Flag. And, you know, I always thought he, he was so angry and I always thought that was so funny. That's so great. Okay, so then you pursued it as a career. What was the steps between sort of loving it as a kid and then and you did all the student government stuff and policy? How did you then so I take moved, that? So I, I didn't graduate from high school. I don't have a high school diploma. Right. Um, but I do have a bachelor's degree from UCLA. Um, so I, I ended up going to college. Can you do that? I don't know how the system works. Is that are you? Is that okay? Yeah, when you're an you adult. To, so I right. went to community college for two years and right. tested into math and English uh-huh. and, and finished the program and then got a scholarship to UCLA. So did you leave high school with that because you just had enough of learning? And no, you I, was, to do I walked commencement. Like they let me walk and, and go through the ceremony, but I just didn't get a diploma. And I remember waiting on stage <laughs> for my name to be called. And the assistant principal looked, looked at me and said, oh, better luck next time. 
Wow. And then the next time I walked on stage, I was 38 weeks pregnant and I was getting my bachelor's degree in philosophy. Wow. Yeah. So That's I did such have a great story. Yeah. It's funny. That's amazing. So that, and then, oh, so, hey, philosophy, but where, what about the, you said you'd work for a political campaign. You did a bit of, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I was working in politics that summer and I moved to California. Uh-huh. My parents knew that I wasn't going to do well languishing in community college. They knew that I was really, really driven and, you know, didn't fit into the community college mold. So they told me they would pay me uh-huh. to leave or they would charge me rent to stay. <laughs> so I moved to California. That's very cool. I like yeah. that. I And I'm really appreciative that they did that because yeah. they, they wanted me to spread my wings. So I promised them that I would go to community college in Southern California. And I did for a couple of weeks, long enough to get an internship at a radio station. So uh-huh. then I started working at an alternative radio station. Music focus, yes. not politics, no. not like talk radio, political stuff. No, okay. but... Uh, the morning show did have some fun at my expense because I was a Republican. And right. So they sent me one time to interview Dan Quayle. <laughs> okay. uh, and this was in 92. That's terrible just to burst out laughing the minute that his name is mentioned. I know. That's very rude, but I was, isn't it? I was obsessed with it's him. Even so in I, England, he was famously, you know, someone know, you should a, laugh at. That's terrible. I apologize. He's known as a dum-dum, but there are people in politics who've been far stupider since then. Yes. Uh, but he, he gets a bad rap. But uh, I was obsessed with him. I thought he was very handsome. We were both from Indiana. Right. And so I had this weird Dan Quayle fetish. So they sent me to <laughs> Southern California where he was giving a press conference. And so at the time, I had a purple dress and purple hair and purple lipstick. And his press secretary yelled out, last question. And so I yelled out, Vice President Quayle. And he took my question, but I didn't have a question written. <laughs> so I said, how do I look in purple? And the press was furious because they had all these questions because it was, you know, the summer of the night. Is that a real in. story? It's a real you story. You literally asked him that yep. question. And he goes, you uh, you look great in purple. <laughs> so yeah, it was so that. absurd. Uh, but he was he was very nice. And that was my one interaction with the vice president. Well, there you are, you know, and, and set you on the path to the glory. Yeah. And then in my apartment, today. when I got the job at MTV, I had... A picture, an official So wait, picture. wait, wait. You were the radio station. Is that when you next met? The next move was MTV? Next or move was MTV. Here in, we're talking here in, in Los Angeles. No, so. in New York. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So okay. that was, that was like July of 92. And then in August of 92, my, my boss from the radio station got a job as a senior vice president of programming at MTV. Ah, okay. And was able to get me an audition. And the president of MTV at the time, Judy McGrath, she agreed that I could be hired, and yeah. then I moved to New York. Wow. And what was your first job there? Uh, MTV VJ. So I was doing... But do they put you straight... I mean, it's it's like, were you doing the middle of the night? You know, I when... got there Saturday night, and yeah. Monday morning I went to work. And then Monday night I was on the air. And it was crazy, because I had no training and no... This is what happened to me here, by the way, to all those who enjoy watching my show. I mean, I couldn't believe that they would give me... A live TV show, never having done it before. Yeah, and they're like, here you go. Here's a studio in Los Angeles. And yeah. your and your studio is beautiful, by the way. It's a great setup. But yeah, they just sort of throw you in and they're like, okay, well, I know. don't screw it up. So you're do- So what What was the... Because I, I was in the UK. I didn't just watch it. So I mean, obviously, with, with MTV, you th- you'd like in the UK, I think we just got the videos. I don't think we had the kind of shows with the... VJs. I can't remember. MTV Maybe Europe. it's a different MTV Europe. Yeah. That's why it's a different thing. Okay. Yeah, and it was totally different. Different programmers. Different. That's DJs. right. So what were you kind doing? Format. Um, I was hosting a nightly alternative music show. Uh huh. And it was great. It was so really were you fun. just introducing acts yes. and videos? And not... then eventually, and it took about six months. Eventually, they let me actually interview bands. Wow. It took so long because they didn't trust me. They thought I was very impulsive. And, and did they think of you as the Republican? Network. Or yes. did they even know that you keep it secret? No, I, I told people because, again, it made people mad and that made me happy. 
<laughs> and it was it was in you know obviously in November of '92 Bill Clinton was elected. Right. So I got there in September. Clinton was elected in November two months later, and I was like, this is the death of our country. This and I was very dramatic right. about everything because I was 20 and I was like, oh, but it was you know very very fun. So it's interesting though because in those days, so, so it sounds all along, you were not at all embarrassed by being a Republican, even though you're in settings where that was not the norm. Yes, to be but a... if, if someone were on MTV on a regular basis and claimed to be a Republican, they would be run out of the city and certainly out of the building uh-huh. and out of the company. They, you know, they had a level of curiosity and tolerance right. that doesn't exist today. And when I interviewed Pat Smear for my book that came out in 2013, he even said that. He's like, there's no way you could have said then what you say now and kept your job things are so polarized yes. and and people are so entrenched that they would not have been tolerant of someone who was on the other team yeah and then how long were you there five years uh-huh solid what's, what's the next move the next move was seattle and then uh-huh. I, I did talk radio in seattle and it yeah. was really fun and then is that I, when you're doing and, and, and did you get the chance to be more political then yes so that's when i really found my libertarian voice right and i had i had at that point um i was defining myself as a republicanarian a registered uh-huh. republican but an ideological libertarian right and uh and you know i i learned a lot more about limited government and economic theory and you know got to talk about things at a very politically interesting time in mm-hmm. a really interesting place like seattle yeah which the thing about seattle and especially with talk radio really only seattle itself is liberal the rest of the state is very conservative uh-huh. so it it made for um you know crazy phone calls and a lot of disagreement and it was a fun place to broadcast and then i got a job in los angeles and moved there and then i stayed in la for like gosh 15 years and doing radio again radio and then that's when i went to college uh-huh. and some tv i was hosting game shows for game show network which was really fun wow yeah I, that i didn't know at all yeah and then i i put myself through college uh i was a panelist on a show on vh1 called best week ever right and and that's how i put myself through college even though i had a scholarship but still i had to pay for like books and and then how'd you end up at fox news I had met Roger Ailes in 1993 right. before he started Fox News, and someone had given me a copy of his book mm-hmm. because I was so dour. I had no expressions on camera when I first started at MTV, and right. so a guy gave me a copy of his book as if to say, you know, you have to learn how to be a broadcaster, because I had the voice part down from uh-huh. doing radio, yeah, yeah. and and then I met him, and he signed my book, and uh, when I was promoting a book that I'd written in 1999, he called me into his office and said, you know, I want you to move to New York and be a part of Fox News. And I said, I just moved to Seattle. I can't leave. Uh-huh. Can I fly back and forth? He's like, no, we really need you here. And then uh, I met with him again. Actually, I met him a few times because I was doing a show for a different Fox cable network. Uh-huh. And I would see him at Upfronts and, and I would be like, what's up? And then, um, and we never had inappropriate or untoward conversations. Um, and then in, uh, 2011, mm-hmm. they, uh, they agreed to kind of give me a try. And then 2012, John Stossel hired me to be a correspondent on his show on Fox business. So he, so I think of him as the libertarian Yes. and you as well. So that's, yes. that was the fit. And so did, so they, so when, when they sort of brought you on board, they had you down ideologically as a libertarian. Yes. 
Okay. And everyone and they, knew that. And they wanted a piece of that. Yes. Because that's not the sort of, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't here then, but you kind of think of Fox News as being, I suppose, it's, as you say, it's part of the story, mm-hmm. part of the um, conservative story, that aspect of it, but more kind of mainstream Republican conservatism and that the libertarianism is a bit kind of um, on the edge of that. Do you think that's right or do you think it's it, it actually was more central all I, along? I think it's right and I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be conservarians. They're constitutionalists, right. they believe in limited government and they just have some more conservative values uh, than traditional libertarians but a lot of younger viewers and younger voters, even though they don't call themselves libertarian, they tend to be a little bit more libertarian, especially when yeah. they skew center-right. And it's interesting because one of the things that I've always you know, questioned is wh- why is it, given the emphasis, even within mainstream conservatism, let alone the libertarian version, on freedom, wh- why it isn't, in, in a way, the kind of the demographic profiles of the parties or, or the ideologies aren't just completely reversed in the sense that... Um, you want that, you know, that that sense of freedom should be more appealing yes. to younger people. But it just Absolutely. doesn't seem to work like that generally across the population. In some ways, when it comes to religion and marriage and expression, all of those things, you know, especially with millennials, they embrace freedom. Yeah. Um, but, you know, each each side of the spectrum has their limits to freedom. And I love freedom. I think we should have more freedom in every realm in every way possible. And how where, how do you see it um, in terms of the, the broad range of issues? And I think one, one thing that maybe some assumptions that I'm bringing to it without that word, the word libertarian in the U, in UK politics is very much associated with, a, you know, the personal behavior aspect. Mm-hmm. So being, you know, so particularly sex and drugs and that kind of thing. Yes, but that's less on economics or government and so on. See, I think the economic aspect is just as important as the choices that we make as individuals. And, you know, that's what do you put in your body? Who do you put in your body? All that stuff. Yeah. Like that should be left up to the individual unless you're hurting someone. Right. Or taking something from someone else. Right. You know, that's those are, are cardinal rules that you don't violate. Other than that, leave me alone. Yes. But it's, it's and in the UK, so for example, there's, a, there's one of the politicians I work with in the UK, he had this saying uh, when he was talking about, you know, the, the kind of, the overlap and, and, the, and the distinction between libertarianism and conservatism in the UK sense. Mm-hmm. He used to say, uh, he had this kind of line, which, oh, libertarians are conservatives who haven't had children yet. That's funny. And his thing was, once you have kids and a family, suddenly you lose all that kind of, yeah, everyone do what they want, because suddenly you become more conservative in your social attitudes. That's interesting because um, I, since having children, have had a greater yearning for freedom because I want them to be free, but I also want them to take responsibility for their own actions. And I think personal responsibility is such a critical component. And that's something that we've almost completely lost sight of on, you know, on all angles of the spectrum. Yes. And that's very unfortunate. And and that's one of the most important things I I try to impart to my girls is you have to, you know, only take what you can carry and you have to take responsibility for your choices. Yes. Therefore, you know, make better choices. So I just think that's so true. I, I think I've said this before on the show, and well, I'll kind of murder the quote now because I, I can never remember the exact quote. But there's a incredibly famous quote, um, not famous. It's famous to me because I really like it, and I and it, and it makes this point. Um, 
And it's about this question of self-restraint versus restraint from the government. I think it's a lock quote, and it's um, you know, it's something like men are, um, have a, uh, are, uh, can have freedom in exact proportion to their propensity to put moral chains upon their appetites. Mm. The more that they do it from within, the less that they need it from without. And yes. it's kind of getting at that balance. You, you need less government if people are more responsible. Yes, absolutely right. And it's that sense of people just doing what they want in the end means you have to have more government. But that's not always understood about libertarianism. It's it, it, that the kind of notion of it as a free for all is mm-hmm. quite part of how people see it. And it's interesting because, like, it's not necessarily libertine. It, it's that's not right. About, that's the crucial word, isn't it? Yeah, exactly and, different. and that's yeah. that's a differentiation. It's not about yeah, man. I just want to shag everyone and do a bunch <laughs> of drugs. Like, I don't. That sounds exhausting and horrible. <laughs> you know, I I really I want to pursue my passion and my dreams. Yes. And I want to be a good mom. And I want the space to do that without someone infringing on my ability to pursue those great things. And, you know, people are better at making their own mistakes mm-hmm. than government is at trying to correct them. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of where we are now in politics, where you've had this, you know, since the arrival of Donald Trump and that populist sentiment? And you've always been very consistent about that. When we've talked about things, you, don't, you definitely take a different position. But what are you just stepping back from it? What do you what, what do you think that says that that the Republican Party has fallen for this approach, which is really very different to the libertarian approach? Uh, I I'm fine with it as long like I I love the idea of um, Amity Schley's Forgotten Man, mm-hmm. and when she talks about Calvin Coolidge and you know the the history of the United States in the early 20th century, um, I I think all of that is very interesting and, and there's something to be said for that and those are the people that the democratic party completely forgot about yeah. when they became so obsessed with identity politics uh, i just don't want it to to veer into the collective and and that's always my worry with populism mm-hmm. like anything that smacks of groupthink mm-hmm. um or collective action like that puts you on the road do you mean by that but, but government intervention you yes. think it yeah i think that's fair i mean i think that is the thing that that m- makes it different i mean i would say there's huge overlaps between all of these ideas between conservatism libertarianism and that what i would call positive populism yes um which is this you know there's so many things that they're overlapping there you know particularly and, and when it comes to policy you know whether that's tax cuts or deregulation and that skepticism of of big bureaucratic government on the other hand i think the populist approach does allow for more government Mm-hmm. Um, role in solving problems or, or getting involved in markets, for example. And from a libertarian point of view, you look at government failures, yeah. and it, it's a, a long and rich history and a very consistent one. And it just doesn't make sense that government has failed so many times in so many ways. How is the solution ever more government? And that's one of the things that I come back to constantly. It's like with healthcare, yes. the reason healthcare and housing are so screwed up is because there's so much government involvement. And, you know, leftists especially want to lean on government even more, but, you know, the natural conclusion is, well, you'll have an even bigger failure. Yes. And so, and that's what I would like to... I totally agree with you on that. I mean, in in my book, there's a section on housing, not a particularly long one, but I think it's so crucial to every, you know, when you talk about um, people's economic security and opportunity, and that's such a big part of it, whether you can afford a home, where you live and so on. And and the 
exactly as you say the reason and actually funnily enough there's an interesting overlap with populism there because my take on it is that the the reason it is so bad and housing is so expensive particularly you know in california for example all these rules that are put there the zoning rules the regulations where you can build what you can build all that kind of stuff rent control exactly that all that's government action but it totally favors the establishment players the big the corporations that the owners of property the big housing companies and big property companies who know how to play the rules and they can pay all the kind of local lobbyists that go and you know deal with the local politicians and give them money and and all that stuff so it's corrupt in that true popular sense and so what i argue for is a total lifting of all of those regulations so you can basically literally build like my my proposal is that you, you basically designate all land is one of two things either developed or not de- or nature mm-hmm. which you protect because i you know i don't want to see problem built. With that at all. and then when, once you've said okay this is developable you do what you want literally you build anyone can buy it anyone can build what they and, want but also let the market dictate that because yeah. when you have the unnatural introduction of government forces into things like real estate it really skews prices and vacancies and and that's one of the biggest problems because if you keep prices unnaturally low you're not going to have any vacancies so what happens to the places that are vacant well then those rents skyrocket yes so you can't have rent stabilization in every home in every area and you know the thing i don't understand about manhattan is why is there this moral obligation that everyone from every bracket deserves to live in manhattan i don't deserve to live in bel-air i can't afford a 16 million dollar house should there be subsidized housing in bel-air now I know it is crazy, it, and it's such a central. It's not discussed enough because it's one of those policy issues that is not as kind of sexy as whatever immigration or whatever. But it so affects everyone's life. It's amazing. I want to ask you about um, the Libertarian Party and the presidential candidates and all of that over the years. Have you ever gotten involved with with them or? The, no, I'm I'm not a registered Libertarian. I'm actually right. in, in California, an unaffiliated voter. Uh-huh. So and you know California now has open primaries, which is great. Yeah. Um, but I've, you know, I and I know they have really great intentions, but sometimes they impose these purity tests that uh-huh. uh, keep really smart people out of the process and. Even with the purity test, you end up with people like Bill Weld, and he was horrible for the Libertarian Party, and he didn't do any good. Yeah. He promised to raise a bunch of money and raise the profile, and and then uh, there's this funny contradiction because Libertarians don't want any help from the government, but if you cross that 5% threshold, you get uh, campaign finance matching, you know, presidential matching, which is hysterical because, you know, some libertarians are like, oh, if we get to 5%, it's like, what? You want to hand out now? <laughs> you hypocrite? Um, so hopefully this year you'll see better candidates and smarter people running who really do want to get on the debate stage and, uh-huh. and challenge the state. Oh, to get, make the argument. Yes, of okay. both parties. And they thought, you know, I think a lot of libertarians thought with Ron Paul being mm-hmm. as successful as he was in 2012, maybe that was a nice foundation for mm-hmm. an expanded libertarian horizon. And so in 2016, before President Trump got in, they just assumed that Rand Paul would be the front runner uh-huh. and that it would be a liberty driven Republican. Rand platform. Paul. Rand, yeah. And that he would make the argument from within the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Okay. Is that who's, who's doing that now? I mean, he's still at it. He's yes. still consistent. You, you, do you think of him as being consistent on all this? Uh, he's, he's pretty consistent. Yeah. You know, I, I like him and I don't have a problem with him 
finding areas of agreement with the president. I think Mm -hmm. that's very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Um, And he doesn't agree with everything. And then sometimes he goes rogue and Republicans get really mad. But that's kind of what they paid for. You know, they they know exactly what they're getting with him. But there are, you know, a couple of younger congressmen like Justin Amash and Thomas Uh Massey who love being a bee in their Republican bonnet. And I think it's fantastic. (laughs) And they also are very good about explaining every single vote they make. And their constituents love them. That's interesting because we're speaking just at the time when I th- um, when um, the president's emergency declaration over the border is um, being voted on, and Justin Amash was one of the. He's very clear yes. that that is a step you, too you far, cannot, and you yeah, don't want to. Yeah, you cannot yeah. just declare an emergency. You can't just make up an emergency out of nothing. Yeah. And then say this this is so. I need billions of dollars. But that's an, it's an interesting argument because he, he's a Republican, mm-hmm. and so it makes the and, and there so are with people Rand who Paul, want him to run as a libertarian. Uh, and do you think that's a good idea, or is better, more actually more impactful to make the argument within the Republican for family? Him, for for these people, I, I think as Congress, you know, men and women, yeah. I, I think it's better for them to work within the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, I think Justin Mosh could do great things running for president as a libertarian. Interesting. And okay. they're, they're really trying to draft him to do that. Draft, and you're and you're you back that. I don't have a problem with that. Very good. Interesting. All right. So we've got to bring it back to music, Kennedy, because sure. that's where you started. And I've got a very important question for you, which is, what do you think of President Trump's music choices, particularly the one choice that every single rally forever, now he's totally consistent on this, ends with that Rolling Stones song. You can't always get what you right. Want, I yeah. mean, what's that? I mean, what do you think of that? It's it's so strange because that's, it is, isn't it? Like, yeah. what's that about? Yeah, I, you know, and is that saying, well, I may not be what you wanted, but you can't always get what you want. You get what you need, you yeah. know, like, okay, it's, it's a sort of a, a responsibility thing. Maybe he just thing. likes the song. I think that's right, which is great, by the way. Yeah. I remember when um, when I was working for David Cameron and we and we were friends as well, and we, we were sort of hanging out on a summer vacation down in the kind of West Country in England while we were putting together the kind of ideas and plans for his... Uh, I guess the the leadership campaign when he ran to be leader of the British Conservative mm-hmm. Party and a bit like a primary, I guess. And um, which the Killers had their album out and we we're just listening to it the whole time. Yeah. And so we just used a bit of, of one of those tracks because we really liked it for his walk-on music. And I just think it's so. Um, <laughs> I know. I've always wondered that with the, with the president, why that track? And I know, he, it's, so funny. He, uh, it's like there's they haven't changed it all these and years. And it was funny because he was using uh, "Twisted Sister." We're not going to take it for a while, and I thought that was really funny until Dee Snyder got really mad and then right. kind of disavowed his friendship with Donald Trump. So these things are there. It's great because music doesn't always make sense. Yes, it doesn't. and and sometimes you like things and you you can't explain why exactly you like them and you know i've given up trying to be cool like i no longer try to be cool. i just listen to what i really really like does that even extend to 80s pop music yes absolutely okay well there you are yeah, so yeah. i guess that has because there was a time when that was so embarrassing to like some of that stuff but i get a sense it's it's becoming a bit cooler oh it's it's so great and even you know like an emotion and um, you're my obsession. You're oh my, my obsession. god! Exactly. Yeah, I love that stuff. <laughs> and uh, Berlin, and you know, even like uh, putting on the Ritz by Taco. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, that is pushing it too far. But yeah. um, I think. I know, I'm not cool. I told but you. I totally. Ex- well, you've, you've definitely proved that. And you are not a positive populist. We've proved that. <laughs> positive, but you're definitely a positive. positive and we love that. So that's great. <laughs> Kennedy, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.